What is that monstrosity, and why is it in the living room? It's a time machine. A time? You can't be serious. Of course I am. I bought the plans off the internet. I made a few modifications of my own, so now the computing power is off the charts. I cannibalized all of Lou's electronics for parts. I am assuming you did not get his permission for that. What am I saying? Of course you did not get his permission. Oh, he, he won't mind. I'm going back to 1969 to experience the birth of D&D. You should come. I took the seats out of Lou's car. There's plenty of room for you. Uh, save yourself the trip because we have some living D&D history joining us today in the dojo. Let's spend an evening with Tim Cask this week on the Dungeon Master's Dojo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dungeon Masters Dojo Podcast. This is a show for game masters and players alike. We hope to bring you tips and tricks to elevate your game and develop the art of dungeon mastery. I'm your host, Louis Zapante, and these are your dungeon masters, Scott Labby and Bill Robitaille. Let's head to the dojo and see what they have in store for us today. All right, and we're on. So... Tim, how did you come to meet Gary Gygax and become the first full-time employee of TSR? I called him up late one night. I had a chainmail question. Tom Woman had been running a game at, at uh, the University of Chainmail. That's the first time I'd ever played it. And we came up with a rules question. We made an interpretation, and we went on. <laughs> but it just um, it just nagged at me a little bit, wondering if I was right. So uh, being the uh, shy, retiring type I am, I uh, called directory assistance, long-distance directory assistance, and asked, do you have a guy named Gygax in Lake Geneva? And they did, and they gave me the number. And a couple of day, days later, it was Saturday night when the rates went way down after 9 o'clock on Saturday until 6 or 7 on Sunday. It was the cheapest time you could call long-distance. So I called him up at home. Hi, are you Gary Gygax? You're the one that did chain mail? Yep, yep. Hi, who are you? I told him. And that conversation lasted uh, over an hour. We just had a lot of common common interests, and Gary liked to, to, liked to jabber, and I liked to jabber. And um, <clears throat> one thing led, you know, and, and something I didn't notice at the time, but when I asked him the rules interpretation question, the first thing he responded with is, how did you solve it? And he did that throughout. When people come up and want to go, well, how'd you do it? That would always be his first question. And never answer a question. He would always ask a question, well, what did you do? How did you solve it? What did, you know, how did you work it out? And uh, he would never say, oh, you're wrong. If you were, he'd say something like, well, I might have done it a little differently. He never tell you anybody, especially a stranger, you were wrong. Because he loved gaming, and we talked about games and gaming, and I'd been playing games since sixth grade in Catholic school, and he'd been playing games forever and ever. And, and um, <clears throat> a couple, three conversations led to uh, Dare to come up to Gen Con in Lake Geneva, and I did in 74, and didn't get a room or anything like that. I didn't know, you know, my butt from second base. And uh, 
spent the day and played a couple times and bought a set and took it back to college. And as they say, the rest is history. We kept up our correspondence, our well, conversations. We didn't correspond. Um, kept up our conversations, and I said, you know, uh, sounds like what you need is a, you know, a quality editor. And because uh, I told him after I played D and D the first time, I told him the rules sucked. <laughs> and I think I probably used those words, you know. I mean, because I, they were poorly laid out, and it took me, uh, and I'm an experienced gamer and fairly intelligent, took me three weeks to figure them out and get a campaign started. Three weeks of all my spare time pouring over these books, trying to figure out what the hell they actually meant. And uh, I told him that. And he laughed and says, yeah, well, we, we, we know our strong suits and uh, editing isn't and writing isn't one. I said, well, that's mine. And so we started talking and uh, he said, well, you know, if, uh, you, you're looking for work when you graduate. And this was about a, a year down the road uh, or so. Um, he said, uh, we'll have a place for you. So I went to uh, the college and I changed my major. I did a specialized major and gave them a curriculum of what I would take, and they approved it, probably because the the guy that was on the board that approved these things was also our club sponsor. So (laughs) we were fellow war gamers. And so I I took a bunch of classes across a bunch of disciplines and um, graduated and uh, went to Lake Geneva and went to work. Uh, We had talked about taking this strategic review and making it into what became Dragon and Little Wars. Um, these were all just, you know, if you do this, yeah, we can do that. And so they were just like, maybe what ifs, possibly we could, maybe, you know, type talk back then. And then I went to work and we started to do them. And in the meantime, we were uh, an unofficial uh, playtest group. They didn't, well, I say unofficial, they were official. They just didn't know they were being used as guinea pigs by me and Gary. <laughs> Because we tried out a lot of rules on them. And oddly enough, I had a great bunch of guys because a couple of, they wrote a couple of the other, uh, they wrote the, one of them wrote the Druid and uh, one of them wrote um, one of the other, the initial uh, early uh, player characters came from two guys in my group in Carbondale. So yeah, it's kind of like wow, you know, we we had a little super group going down there uh, of a sort, like they had going in Lake Geneva. Excellent. And then I graduated and left, and that was that. So what was it like in the early days of D and D and TSR? Well, those are two separate things. All right, let's start with TSR then. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've we you already started dark. on part of it, so dark <laughs> because we're in Gary's basement. And we had 100-watt light bulb. <laughs> well, it, it's <laughs> gaming. It's always in the basement with a 100-watt light bulb. So I, I, I hear you. It was a true story. I know it sounds like Pilgrim days or something. And we had we had uh, sawhorses and and pieces of plywood for big tables. And when we had collate games, we used the dining room table upstairs in his dining room because he had a table big enough to seat all his family and a couple more. So that's how we'd walk around the table picking up pieces and collating the games. Uh, but it was dark in his basement. I only worked there half days. Um, <laughs> my wife, Cheryl, uh, worked at the uh, county hospital uh, second shift. So I generally went home. I left, pardon me, uh, about uh, one thirty or 2 every day. 
and I went home and I worked several hours at home. The back bedroom was my uh, other office with my desk and my typewriter and everything. And um, so I, I, I took care of my daughter until she went to sleep. And then I wore, I went to work. Um, that's how the boule got done during the uh, middle of a Saturday night live uh, uh, rerun. <laughs> <laughs> then what about, what about D and D then? The early days of D and D. D and D was wild west and woolly. And um, because the rules were so badly written and so difficult to understand because, and, and I was also a miniaturist and these were written for miniatures players. Nobody else could have possibly understood what was going on at the time. Nobody else used figures. They didn't, they didn't personify uh, chits on a game board. Okay. I mean, they just, you didn't do that. And, um, <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a dry throat. Everybody was making wildest uh, interpretations of the rules and trying trying this uh, variant out and that variant. And it was still going on when I got to TSR in the fanzines. And we were constantly peeing on brush fires uh, in the fanzines. Oh, no, 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 we don't want to see that in at the end of the game. You know, spell point systems, oh, no. <laughs> and then uh, the A&E people got crazy, and um, the people out on the East Coast, uh, they really took you that girdle of uh, sex change, and uh, then they then they had girdle of sex change and orientation change, or just orientation. They had all these girdles that were really down a dark alley. We didn't want to go in. in. All right, <laughs> this, this was 70, 71, 72, You know, we really didn't want to go into that dark alley. So well, this is what happens when that. games are played in cellars with 100-watt light bulbs. I know. They're, <laughs> they're created there. They're created there. You know, yeah, that was 75, 76. We, we spent a lot of time doing stuff like, you know, discouraging that kind of thing. Or uh, we would publish uh, a, a better interpretation or a reinterpretation of a segment of a rule or something like that that would then quash what was going on. Um, for instance... The boule has a particular fondness for dwarven ponies. Yep. It's written into the into the description because somebody somewhere in a fanzine figured out that somewhere they had Welsh underground ponies. Back in the 17th century, the Welsh used ponies underground. Therefore, the dwarves must have underground ponies. And so all of a sudden, the game, and when I say the game, I mean in a, in a national sense, the game, all the places it was being, all the nodes in the web that it was being played in, was overrun with dwarven ponies. So I created a monster that liked them and would chase them down in open territory and kill them and eat them. And in that, not just the boule, but in that and other ways, we tamped down stuff that we really didn't think was going to be good for the long-term survival of the game. I remember reading that yep. in Dragon Magazine, one of the very early editions. It was like the ecology of the boule, and it mentioned its fondness for dwarven ponies. <clears throat> well, um, <clears throat> the boule got introduced a, a month early by because there was a mistake. Um. Back then, when we did ads, you had to actually send the film negatives through the mail, and occasionally the mail got mangled. 
And in this case, a half-page ad got mangled. And so I went home that weekend on Saturday night and came up with the boule. Um, I, I went to Gary earlier in, 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 in like on Friday, Thursday or Friday, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I got a half page. I got to fill my uh, creature features. It's going to start early. And I went, I got the bag of monsters out of the drawer, and I said, which one of these hasn't been statted out yet? And the boule, the bullet, they called it, was one of a couple. The other two were really stupid in that original bag. They were just like stuff from Japanese horror movies. Silly. <laughs> so he said, you know, I said, what's it done? Well, he said, a couple of times it's run down the hall and knocked everybody over. And that's why they got the name Bullet, because of its shape, and it would just run at high speed down the hall, knocking people, you know, like 10 pins. I said, fine. And so that's how it became the Boulet, because I didn't like the French at the time. Didn't like France. And we were making, in the, in the States, we were making fun of the French all the time. And um, heard the land shark uh, on Saturday Night Live, and had already decided it was going to eat dwarven ponies. So all that weird shit coalesced in my back bedroom <laughs> in Calvin, Wisconsin, and became the boulet. I called up Dave Sutherland. I said, "We're taking the bullet, and we're making it in. Can you give me a drawing?" So he gave me a drawing over the weekend of the boulet reaching up into the tree, because I made you know I made him be able to go up in and you know reach in the trees and that. And so he whipped out a drawing for me. And uh, create the creature feature started a, a month early. And a lot of stuff we did up there, don't let anybody kid you otherwise, it's it, it just as chaotic in its creation as that was. A piece here, it's up there, an impulse there, and uh, a bad dining experience. And <laughs> we came up with something, you know. There's, um, there's, there's something to be said it, for jerk knee responses. <laughs> Jerk knee? No, I believe that's knee jerk. Knee jerk. Knee jerk. Yes, please. You're, you're talking to an editor here. Well, they're always calling me a jerk, so I start with that. <laughs> oh, well, no. In this case, you're second rate. So what is your fondest memory you have with uh, TSR? Oh, the first year and a half or two years. Uh, anything in there. <clears throat> Some of the stuff we did was incredibly hard work those first couple of years, but... There, there's nothing as satisfying as opening up on the first day of a convention, we'll say Metro Detroit Con, which is a big deal at the time uh, in numbers and where it was in the Midwest. And it was in uh, down on the, on the riverfront, you know, in a really fine building. And, lying, you know, having our three tables and wondering, uh, did we bring too many books or whatever? And they opened the doors and we sold everything we we had set out the first hour and a half and we're unboxing and bring boxes up and we sold a, just about every bit of product we brought with us that weekend. Uh, worked our asses off doing it because it was nonstop at the table because back then you had to listen to everybody's last favorite dungeon story and then they'd <laughs> buy the book. So, you know, that's where I got sick of listening to everybody's last favorite adventure because we had to listen to literally hundreds of them in those first years. Because, you know, you're standing there smiling, waiting for him, give me the money, give me the money, give me the money, thank you, goodbye. And then you had to listen to the next one. And it would go on like that for hours. And we understood. People were enthused. They, they loved our product. And, and that, yeah, we fed on that energy. 
But oh my God, I, I, if I hear another bad dungeon story that they left part out of because now it makes no sense whatsoever. But, <laughs> you know, they understand it, but no, nobody else did. Those are those are great times. Um, sitting with Gary in the office in our blue sky meetings, where we just sit in there and bullshit, smoke cheap cigars, and drink bad scotch, and sit in his study and think about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we uh, could uh, up the print run to you know seven thousand. Or you know some, or you know someday we'll sell thirty thousand D and Ds and laugh our heads off. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. Um, just dreaming, and most of the dreams came true. So how can you not love that period of time? Good point. You know, um, putting out the supplements and having them snapped up every, you know, bang, 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 bang. Starting with Blackmore, there was always a, a market that was hungry for the supplements. And then um, when we came out with AD&D and how we marketed it and which books came when, uh, we knew exactly what would sell, who wanted, you know, everybody would want the DMG, whether or not they were a dungeon master or not. They want to know if there's any tricks in there that they need to know about. So we sold it last, I believe. I think we went Monster Manual Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master Guide. And in turn, we sold out every one of the print runs. You know, we knew what we were doing. And it's a little cynical in today's terms, but you like playing the game, tough shot. It's, it was cynical. It worked. And you're playing it today. It was good business. It was great business. I mean, we, we, had, we had cash coming in. I'll give you a point. <laughs> um, I don't remember which kind. It might have been the first or the second Origins, which were out in Baltimore. And we had so much cash. Literally, the, the, the cash box was stuffed with cash. So we decided we'd have a poker game that night in the hotel, in the motel room. So it, the deal was every nobody had anything in their pockets. Everybody, you know, we were playing with this real money chips. And so we had like $8,000 oh, worth of money sitting there on the, on, we were playing in chairs around the bed. And so we were counting out. How much is here? Okay, divide that by six. Okay, and we and we played with throwing in, you know, five dollar bills and ten. I mean, that's back when you know five dollars was twenty five dollars today. You know, and we, we we knew it wasn't our money, but oh shit, it was fun playing, <laughs> literally playing with it. It was great fun. So yeah, we had moments like that. What was uh, what was Gary Gygax like to work with, hang out with? Gary Gygax. Guy Gax, yeah. Yes, okay. I, I, Gary would go, <laughs> if he heard you mispronounce his name. Um, <laughs> Gary was um, just as strange as some of his pictures make him look. <laughs> some of those old pictures, the black and white, the old ones where he's looking, you know. <laughs> you know he, in his head, he could be that way. He was a shrewd businessman and a, 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 an abominable judge of character. He brought in the blooms and 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 she who shall not be named ended up in there too. Okay, and so he did not have. He was not a good judge of a person's business character. Obviously, other than that, he was uh, when I knew him before you know the world started falling in on him. Especially the first couple three years I knew him before he lost um, majority control in the company and the purges started um 
he was a happy-go-lucky guy, driven, obsessed, worked out, amazing hours, always had time for his kids. Um, he, you know, he'd work long into the night. You, you'd give, you know, he'd say, "Okay, I'll have it. I'll have the, this all done uh, on Monday," and he'd come in on Monday morning with a 385 typewritten page manuscript that he cranked out that weekend. So he was, you know, he, he was uh, amazingly, um, ener- he, had, he had an enormous amount of energy. Creatively, well, he was like all of us. He looked a little off his trolley. <laughs> but I think all of us that are really, really creative would be uh, classified as a little off their trolley um, because, Normal people don't think about kobolds and goulets and, you know, uh, cutting open monsters to see if there's any gems in their gizzard, you know. I mean, that's not what normal people do. <laughs> but then again, you, you know, who wants to be normal? If if you're not into fantasy, and fantasy is still a minority genre, though um, it certainly has gone mainstream, and um, we knew by 78 what we were going to do to, we, we were beginning to see what was going to happen to popular culture as a result of D&D. Sitting there in that second Hobbit movie, I just got all warm and gooey feeling all over realizing this is what we made possible. Yep. We started yep. this little snowball rolling down the hill. You know, there was Zardoz, there were other bad, you know, sci-fi or fantasy movies. Um, there was Star Wars, of course, but that wasn't that wasn't our bailiwick. You know, that one that wasn't us. Uh, though the day we we went, we had a little theater in Lake Geneva that got movies the week they came out in Chicago. God knows how, probably mob connections. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> we, we would get, we got, we got Star Star Wars the week it came out in Chicago, Milwaukee. We got it in tiny Lake Geneva. And so Gary and I and Brian took the day off. And we went down the day it opened, because it opened like two days or three days later in Lake Geneva. I think it opened on, like on Friday and Saturday in Chicago, and we got it on Monday or Tuesday. But we still had, you know, for a tiny little town of 5,000 people, we had movies right away. So anyway, we walked down. It was like, I don't know, five, six blocks, nice day. Walked down to the theater. Bought our tickets, got some popcorn, went in, sat down, had our minds just blown away like somebody had run a, uh, some kind of thin bottle brush in and out our ears, like scrambled our heads. And we came out after that, and the first thing out of Brian's mouth was, boy, is that going to do good for Traveler? <laughs> So we were always looking at the marketing and we, we really, we were glad it was going to do that because I think one thing you can see in, 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 in Gary's original strategic reviews and in all the time I was there in dragon and a long time after I left before they turned it into a house organ, we believe that the rising tide lifts all boats, make more gamers. You like that game? Fine. Isn't gaming great? And some of those people will come play your game. And some of your people will come play. And we we, we tried to crossbreed. Yep. And 
Dragon Magazine was real big on everybody's games. If there was a good article on a good game, it, I published it. I don't care who made it. Don't care. Dragon was about gaming, not TSR gaming. Unfortunately, people couldn't dissociate the two. They thought anything they saw in Dragon must be canon law. Not the case, even though we continually said so. <laughs> they, they still did it. So, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I don't know where we were, but how it led to there. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the direction the game is going in now? This is kind of a two-part. There's a lot of heated disputes over the wokeness of the game and the loss of its original charm. And, of course, how to play D&D the right way. Well, there is no right way. The right way is the way you and your group enjoy playing it. Amen. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I'm, having, I'm having a little trouble with the woke part. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Okay. The grogs that are screaming about 5E, shut up. <laughs> They're playing D&D. &D. As a person from TSR who wrote some of the original D&D, &D, D &D, I don't care. It's D&D. &D. And if they're having fun, that's the whole point of playing Absolutely. games is to have fun. Grogs, if you don't want to play 5E, don't. Easy peasy. Don't. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. If you watch my curmudgeon in the cellar on YouTube every week. Uh, <laughs> Which I love. I, I, yes. I, I beat that horse at least once a month. Games are supposed to be having fun, and if you're great, if you if, if you're a DM and your players come back game after game after game, you're doing it right. Doesn't matter how you're doing it compared to this guy, you're doing it right because your players are coming back and having fun. In a sense, we're all a little incestuous, but not in that sense of the word. <laughs> but. Uh, now, the woke. 5e prom night, give me a break. Drow are African-Americans. Huh? Um, drow are dark because they live underground, and there's, you know, mythical crap in the background. But, you know, they're, they're dark because they live underground for the same reason the Eloys are pale because they live underground because that's the way the author wrote them. I can absolutely quantitatively, qualitatively state that there was never any racial any kind of shit that went into the formation of any of the races. Gary was not a racist. Gary used to lament that we couldn't attract more people other than screwy white guys who lived in the basement and had pen protector pockets. Okay? I mean, he, he bemoaned that. We, we strove so hard to reach out beyond that early stereotype. Um, nothing was done in a, a real-world sense of racism. Nothing ever. Were there historical archetypes used? Certainly. Every author draws on what they know in creating something new. People are going, oh, you, you besmirched the gypsies. Well, you know, it's funny. Just about every major culture in the, in the world today has a clan of people that went around fixing pots, sharpening knives, stealing kids, and stealing shit. And they weren't all Romany. Now, recently, 
there was a dumpster fire with the individuals who were involved in the dungeon hobby shop. And one of the morons that was running the name page on Facebook, which is, you know, the one that carries the most clout, made a hideous statement to a person that identifies as a trans woman. I was approached by several trans LGBTQT people. I know a lot of them. They know I have, you know, members in my family of, of various persuasions and stripes. And I was asked, oh, please, oh, please, can you please address this? And so I did in my next video, which was just a couple of days away. I, I addressed it in a very calm and measured fashion. And I made an unfortunate comment that's since been misquoted a couple of times to the effect that it meant so little to me. I don't ask to look up your skirt or down your trousers when you sit down to play at my table. You're just going to sit down in that chair over there. Well, that quote <laughs> has been mangled up a little bit, but it not to where it it's, goes the other direction. I don't care. I Who cares? Who cares? I know guys that are as butch as anybody that played a campaign 15, 20 years ago where they were all women, nasty, evil. Every one of them would put Cruella de Vil to shame. <laughs> all right? I know another campaign of guys, I'm friends with most of them, they used to turn each other, change sex, and then screw them just to get, you know, just to get, <laughs> I got your turn. They, they did it, you know, it was a little sick, but, but they weren't doing it in real life. They were just doing it because that's the way these guys played. And, you know, oh, yeah, and, and I don't necessarily condone it, but I don't condemn it either because they were having fun and none of them really does any of that kind of crap in real life. Some people constantly miss the word fantasy. <laughs> yeah, those that saw it, it was a good portion. I have no idea exactly what it means. Yeah, you know, we should just say we're playing make-believe role-playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody played make-believe when they were a kid. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so after some time in the gaming industry, you left, went back to school yeah. later in life, and became a teacher. Mm -hmm. So how did that go about? I mean, what, what, why did you leave? Because of, because of uh, things that transpired at TSR with me and the Bloom Brothers. Fair and enough. We'll leave it at that. Fair enough. And I, I, uh, I, I won't push anymore. And what I what I told people, you know, after I came back in the gaming in 2006 was I got on with my life. I raised a couple of kids. I coached youth soccer for many, many years. I refereed soccer. I was a high school soccer announcer for both programs, male and female. Um, I had a couple of three different kinds of jobs over the period of time. And I decided I wanted to go back to school and become a teacher. I, I taught before for a year, and I really enjoyed it, and then went on to do something else. And so I decided I'd go back and get a master's in education and promptly priced myself right out of the market. And um, I spent uh, several years subbing at various districts. Um, and um, it, every time I came up to interview, it always went, I always went to a guy who coached football. <laughs> I was soccer, and soccer didn't make money. And so it always went to some guy, you know, some history teacher that that also was an assistant football coach at somewhere else. So uh, I did that for a while, and then I got tired of it, and so uh, I retired. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. I can't wait till I retire. It's only a couple of years away. You hope. I hope. <laughs> I have a very good friend who cannot retire until he's 71 because it'll take him that long to pay off all his kids' college and shit. See, I don't have any yeah. children because the government forbade me to breed. Oh, really? You know, so I, I don't have to worry about that whole college thing. Well, they, they take you into a dark room one night and shoot weird stuff into your body parts and sterilize you? <laughs> no, that my wife did that. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no, that's right. I'm, I'm going, and that was a Mutant Crawl classic. I love Mutant Crawl classics. I love it. Granted, it's done by my buddy. Granted, I read every word of it as he was writing it. But I just love the whole genre. I wasn't real fond of it way back when. And I don't watch zombie movies now. But I love Mutant Crawl Classic with some of its uh it's it's kinda it shares a lot of things with Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yeah, I love the I love the funnel. Yeah. Hi, bring in a stack of characters about this big and be prepared to be down to about here by the time you get out alive and <laughs> play with them next week. Yep. I love that concept. Because back in the early days, we we're all saying, oh, hell, roll up another one, and he's around the corner. <laughs> and that way the group's back up to, up to strength. In the early days, I never went to a table without three or four characters. <laughs> well, we never – now, see, that's a concept that's been lost. And, and that's something from early D&D, early, and we were the first, so I'll, I'll just say early D&D. We had a stable of characters because this guy's healing up. This guy's, you know, whatever Gary's got him to. This guy's in another part of the Shire. All right? So we always had a stable. So if, some, if Rob was walking through the building, and, and you know, this is when we got into the house, Rob, Rob would stick his head in and go, I'm going to run a game tomorrow night. Where? And he'd say what part of, you know, it was basically in Greyhawk. And um, then we would pick a person out of our stable that was available that was in the area. So you never got really attached. Yeah. Not like some people that just have psychic meltdowns when you suggest that their character might be dead. Oh, you can't do you, 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 you need not to invest all your, you know, find a girlfriend. Find a boyfriend. Get I'm a, a dog. I'm going to share a quick story. I was at a table a couple years back with another gaming group before this one. Um, and I asked uh, my player, Zip was his you know nickname, can I see your character? And I, I grabbed it. And when I grabbed it, I crinkled one corner accidentally. But I crinkled one corner. I, I didn't need to see what he had on the sheet because I was questioning a role. I handed it back to him. Well, he, well, he crinkled my sheet. Well, obviously, I'm dead. Shredded the piece of paper right then and there, got up and stormed out because I killed his character. Now, at no point did I do damage to his character or anything, but I crinkled his character sheet. <laughs> I say that guy was teetering on a really skinny ice skate on some really thin ice. ice. Yeah, I mean, he came back and I went, um, what the hell was that? <laughs> Well, now I have known DMs that are cruel, sadistic bastards. Me too. They will. They will take. They will. No, I'm. <laughs> I'm talking. Give me your character sheet. Yeah. And and either put it in their book. Now, if you read Knights of the Dinner Table, Crutch does that. Yeah. Or they'll tear it into small pieces in front of them. That's unnecessarily cruel. 
I can Especially, say honestly that I have never done anything even close to that. He lies. Especially if you think back in the early days, those of us that played it were all aware of the fact that many of us had fragile psyches to begin with. <laughs> we're all slightly our off social jumping. skills were slightly stunted. Well, not I had. Well, I didn't have any problem with social skills. Yeah. I did four years in the Navy, and I was married. Right. So I didn't have problem, but I know that a lot of the players did. I know that a lot of the guys in college did. You know, I had, I had, <laughs> I had two astronomy majors. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> and they both had plastic pen protect pocket protectors where they're four pens and a slide rule. I was going to say, instead of rolling dice, they break up, instead of rolling dice, they broke up the slide rule. <laughs> uh, well, they, that's, that's Neil. <laughs> he, he made dragon spam. That's another story for another time. There was a an extremely high mortality rate in the old versions of the games. Of course, that just isn't there now. It's uh, it's a very survivable game. The DMs game. Are, are weenies, and the players are crybabies. Amen. Amen. Yep, we talk about those old days all the, the time. Risk equals reward. Yep. If you're going to take this fictional character, granted, it's a fictional character, but if you're going to make them as, as you know, just stinking, filthy rich, well, they got to they gotta risk their life at least once. I would think so, yes. I, I, I would think so, but I, like, and I've said this quite a bit. A lot of the newer players are playing a video game on the table now. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I say if they're having fun doing that, let them. I don't have to do it. Right. See, I thought four was a video game oh, because oh, yeah. four took, you know, three hours to have an encounter with three orcs. And it, it looked to me like a video game, except it was going slower than any video game ever made, including the Atari 2600. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that was my take. My game is locked somewhere, frozen in amber, somewhere between the end of OD&D and the beginning of AD&D. And that's where it stays. Um, I don't do clerics the way probably anybody else does clerics. I don't do spells for clerics. They say prayers. They say prayers. They can say a number of prayers of, e of potency equal to what they would say is spells. Three, three relatively small ones, a couple of and one really powerful prayer. And the thing is, when my clerics, they don't have to pick them before they leave in the morning. They have them all at their fingertips. That's how, in my world, clerics make a new level by learning all the prayers of the next level while performing the tasks that... And so when they get to that level, they know them. I'm glad I'm not the only one that has that view. No, and that's exactly how I ran my clerics. Yep. And my, my all-time favorite. Test. Yeah, I can. I've been playing with Bill for about thirty years. Well, um, that's great because you know, say he's got a three-two-one, and um, he's he's burned all his threes, but he's got his two and his one left. You know, his two and his one. Well, he can burn a two to say a one. You know, to say a first level, but he can't say two. Right. Just one. X number of prayers of a certain potency. So it, it's yep. a blanket that covers it all. Yep. Yep. 
That's how I ran for clerics, decades. Clerics become a whole lot more than just pill poppers and pill passers. They become effective. Yes. Oh, I've got a prayer for that. Yeah, you know, I played clerics all different. I only started doing that six, seven years ago. Yep. No, I think my favorite all-time edition was uh, AD&D 2, 2.0. Well, the, I, the, the best thing I can say about 2.0, and not, not knocking it, because I didn't read it from cover to cover, what I know about 2.0 is they cleared up a lot of typos. They did a better edit job <laughs> and clarified a few rules that were butchered in our versions. And I think no credit for the final form <laughs> of AD&D first edition. I have nothing to do with that. Um, I helped get it off the ground. It went to my car, and I had nothing more after that. Yeah, nope, I didn't so touch three. All those typos and all those errors belong to somebody else, not me. I had enough of my own that I have to atone for someday. Yeah. <laughs> nope, I didn't, I didn't touch three, three, five, or four because I, I thought they were very video game mechanic, uh, mechanically. So I did not even look at them. Um, I went from two, two and a half to right to five. It was a well, long time. Well, if you look at what the Wizards that. did with five, they tapped, They knew their market. Give the Wizards credit. Yeah. They yeah. analyzed and identified a market, and 5E took off. 5E sold better than any other edition ever. Absolutely. And, you know, hats off to the Wizards. They did market research apparently, and uh, said, okay, here's what we need. And they tapped in, and I don't, 5E seems to me to be too easy and too much of a Monty Hall, all right? Now, if you uh, remember the old Let's Make a Deal, and then Jim Ward did his Monty Hall, H-A-U-L, and I did that. I published that the first time in Strategic Review. Monty Hall DM just gives away crap like you said at close of Christmas. And that's my take. Yeah, our group doesn't do that. We I think we we still align with the two two five way we give items out. We're very low magic world. Um, thanks to Bill and Scott here. And our whole group and it's anywhere from anywhere I'll say from eight to sixteen of us when we go away for our gaming group. And we I don't think we would play any other way really. Well, I'm I'm relatively low magic. Um, in a given in, in a given uh, scenario or module that I write, there's usually a you know artifact level something involved. But um, I don't do a lot of magical swords, for instance. But I have a lot of plus two swords in my in my world that are just exceptionally well made. Right. Not your average blacksmith in the village hammering out a you know. And I'm not going to get into, well, my blacksmith is a good thing. No, 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 no. It's just exceptionally well made. Damascus steel. Yep. You yep. know, what, whatever, you know, canister Damascus. Now that all of us have watched Forged and Fire. I was going to say, you're a Forged and Fire. I was about to say the same thing, too. <laughs> oh, I watch every one I can get. I man. do, too. I enjoy it. I binged it on Netflix several times. <laughs> watched the whole season. I love it. You know, I, I love just watching these. I like all those kinds of shows that show me how to people do things. Um, um, Gold Rush, Bering Sea Gold, Dangerous Catch. Uh, <laughs> I, I like all those shows. So uh, I, I like watching how people do things. 
I like I, I like how it's made just to watch the machines. What guy thought up that machine that makes a paper clip? What genius went into that? He must be the younger brother to the guy who did the coat hanger. <laughs> well, that was a good one too. I still use cut up coat hangers for many things. So what happened to Gygax magazine? Um, Gail Gygax killed it. Gail Gygax went out and filed trademarks on every possible thing she could file that would have the name Gygax on it or later on. What am I? Have I got 10 minutes left? No, no. We're just talking amongst ourselves. We're giving ourselves oh, some signals. Oh, secret sign language. Oh, <laughs> should have given me a little lexicon of that. These uh, can't. <laughs> We, we were good. we were having a good time uh, doing the magazine. The magazine was being well received. Uh, we were having massive problems trying to get it overseas. And if we were doing it today, we wouldn't even bother trying to get it to overseas. We'd find a distributor and we'd send them in cartons because we'd get it there quicker than the mail would and cheaper. Um, oh, I got a story about that. Anyway, um, she went and filed every single one. So basically, Ernie and Luke can't even use their own last name on any endeavor that has anything to do with gaming unless she missed it. And she filed, like, Jesus, 74 of them. Jeez. Wow. We all wonder where the hell she got the money to file all those. Yeah, those aren't cheap. Well, and we're still wondering where all the money for the statue went. But anyway, she effectively killed it. She tried to kill, well, she did kill Tower Gygax at Gen Con two years after he had done it because she thought there was money involved in it and she should get some. Well, Indiana is the only state, the only state in the union, because I researched it, the only state in the union she could do that. So we dropped it. We didn't do it anymore. And we were just doing it as an homage to Gary, and it was fun and laughs. And I'd kill 37 people in 90 minutes, you know, and they were waiting for more. And it was just that kind of silliness. But she wanted money. She's all about money. She's, uh, you know, she claimed that the will was never found. Well, now will has been found. So I don't know what happened in the court hearing on that. Um, she's a greedy, conniving narcissist. And she effectively stopped Luke and, and Ernie from ever using their name on anything. Now, if she loses the lawsuit to Rob Coons, the only thing she has of value is all those trademarks. So... If Ernie and Luke live long enough, they might get them back. Doesn't that suck? You can't use your own name? Yeah, no yeah. kidding. That, yeah, that's got to be hard. That was the second you know? wife, right? Hmm? Yeah. That yeah. Was his second yeah, wife. Mary's still alive. I, Mary's a sweetheart. She put up with so much shit for so many years. <laughs> uh, um, she's a sweetheart. She's still alive. And, uh, yeah, Gail was the second wife. And, um, in my opinion, is a conniving bitch. I was going to say it for you so you wouldn't get into trouble, but, you know, that's okay. Oh, I've, I've already had a couple. Of, you know, I'll take Gail on any time. Well, with all that said, what are your thoughts on the attempt to revive TSR? <laughs> the dumpster fire that recently took place in the yes. late Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> there's a number of factors here. Number one. And I count myself amongst these. Uh, a lot of people didn't know that that museum is a for-profit organization. It was never mentioned. Hmm. 
myself included, many of us made the assumption that it would be, like most museums, not-for-profit. I had even committed to donating some items, figuring I could write them off. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I'd take the write-off. And um, so there's a little ambiguity from the very beginning. Jason Elliott allowed the TSR wizard thing to lapse that he had. Now, whether he allowed it to or whether uh, Lanasa sniped him, I don't know. But he may have been sniped. So then the shitstorm started. And they came out with the, the new TSR, yada, da 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 you know. And Ernie's name splashed across it. And um, promises of other, the rest of the old gang coming on board. Well... Number one, there isn't a hell of a lot of the old gang left, and number two, ain't none of them come on board. He tried to get me to come on board, no, 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 no. And then they started making really stupid comments. Uh, they did a press release that they were going to start the greatest con in the Midwest in Lake Geneva at the Horticultural Hall. Well, first of all, the press release was full of typos and misspellings. Second of all, the Horticulture Hall won't hold more than about 300 people, and that's if the weather's good. If the weather's bad, cut that in half because everybody squeezes in under the roofs. So a lot of grandiose bullshit got trumpeted out there. Ernie's on board for it. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I like Ernie. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've known Ernie all these years. Sometimes you can sell Ernie a bill of goods. And I think that may be what happened here. Then the comment was made by the person identifying as a trans woman that they did. And one of the, the principals, then you're disgusting. Oh, come on. All right. In this woke age, you're going to do something like that. That's when I got involved with it. I think Ernie's pulled the hell out. Lanasa is still trying to do something. I got sent an invitation to come do some game convention up there. Like there's any chance in hell that's going to happen. <laughs> and um, I, other than that, I don't know what they're trying to do up there or whatever. I noticed they've been busy on Facebook, um, you know, showing the opening and, you know, various boxes on display and all that kind of stuff. I have no plans to go to the museum. Even when I'm at Gary Con in March, I don't intend to drive over and look at it. Since all this happened, Mr. Lanasa's background and past actions have come to light. About the time he had two female employees wrestle in a tub of grits. I read he's something. Run about unsuccessfully that, yeah. <laughs> for public office out in the Carolinas. I don't remember if it's north or south. And he he was a controversial tattooist out there. Now he's the D&D museum owner. Some unkind people might think he's just an opportunist or a hustler. Some I can, I can see how some people could see that. Oh. Yes, some people might say that. Now, I can't comment about whether or not I think they'd be likely to be right. But <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been sued ever. Not going to happen. <laughs> so... Do you still I know game? my libel laws. <laughs> I know my slander laws. There you go. Everything on my, every week on my, my videos, in my opinion. In my opinion. Yeah, we've used that line a few times. Like well, almost every episode. All the time. You know, 
I don't want to be the, you know, everybody thinks I chiseled this shit in stone. I, I don't want to be that guy. So do you still game? Oh, hell yes. Thank um, God. <laughs> I'm going to, um, now that we're back going to cons, I'm going to Game Hole in October in Madison. I'm running the Wheel of Blame five times. I run the Wheel of Blame online, and I actually charge money, and occasionally I get some. And um, every other Wednesday night, I have five buddies, usually three to f all five of them make it, and we board game. And um, But the board games we play allow for a lot of uh, backstabbing, trash-talking, uh, deals broken. Oh, and Monopoly. You got to... Yeah, well, we, we warm up with <laughs> nuclear war and naval war. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, just to just to get our claws sharpened. There you go. Then you move yeah. on to Monopoly. And, you know, one of the guys' nickname is Dog, and the other one's another one's Rhino. Uh, <laughs> he was named for his playing style. Um, he's a lot of fun to have around, but new games and Rhino don't get along. He just tries out rules to see what happens. <laughs> but a great guy, you know. Great guy. And some of my other old gamers from back in the early 80s that I played with, they're dead. So, you know. Well, oops. I mean, I used to play with a bunch of guys in the 80s, and they're still alive. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I played, with, I played with Chuck Crane. He's dead. Yeah. I played with yeah. Dennis Mize. He's dead. Yeah. Uh, I played with a couple others here in, in my basement that have uh, since passed on. So. You know, I'm I'm only 72. I figure I got another 10, 12 years to go. Easily. I'll give you I'll send you a potion. You get 20. Oh, I beat cancer already. I might have a plus 8 on my die roll anyway. Perfect. Tell us about the right, curmudgeon next. in the cellar. And the, cellar. Uh, the wheel of blame online game. Well, the wheel of blame, I run it the same at the cons. The wheel of blame is 4 to 7 players. Each player I hand them out. I give out note cards, you know, little note cards. Each player puts two things on the note card, and I tell them the fewer words, the better. Don't get upset when you give me a World War II flamethrower with a defective ignition device, and I have it blow up and cook half the party. You told <laughs> me it was defective. If you'd given me a flamethrower, well, I might have gone somewhere else, you know. Um, I take... Each of the cards, and I take those two things, no matter how disparate they might be, and I make them into an encounter. So if there's four players, four encounters, seven players, seven, okay? And so in the wheel, you go from encounter to encounter. At each encounter, somebody must get a token. I've got one of these little tokens here. I had, I had several hundred made up just before we got locked down. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I gave them out at one con. Um, so they're, they're real collector's items. But it's a caricature of me on one side. I don't know if you can see this. Yep, we can see it. I, can't, I, I, know, I have me turned off. I, I, I look at myself too much. And on one side it says, and Tim we trust, and the other side it says, it's not my fault. <laughs> That's awesome. Because as you go along, you have to overcome these things. They have pre-gens. They have lots of healing potions. Um, they have a, they have, um, uh, a number of uh, universal antidotes which will fix anything, uh, because it's not about killing them. After getting about an 85% TPK rate for several years at cons, <laughs> I decided, well, after the cancer, I got mellow. Go figure. <laughs> um, and so uh, this is more about having fun. 
And the only rule is you can't say anything if you think I'm on your card. Well, oftentimes, two or three people put something very similar on their cards. So all of a sudden, two or three of them can't talk because it might be their card. And then at the end, when it's all over, we go through and we figure out who's to blame. And I read the cards. And then they think, okay, oh, that was the time we got swirled around in the big swirly in the bathtub by the clown with a rubber paddle. Yep. Because <laughs> you gave me balloons in a bathtub. Okay? So I, t- I, and the best thing I can hear, oh, hell, I died on my own card. <laughs> I just, and I've heard that three or four times now. All right? And um, it's just, it's fun. It, it's not about lethality. It's about thinking. We don't recognize that there is a box. So forget thinking, well, box? What box? It's about thinking out. You know, I had a guy, they, they, they had this, this horrible thorn hedge. They had hedge. They had to figure out how to get across. And also in this area, there was these enormous butterflies with, you know, like a six-foot wingspan. And they, he noticed that they were really going crazy about these big trumpet flowers and the nectar. So they took a bunch of the trumpet flowers, poured the nectar. He stripped naked. They poured the nectar all over him. I rolled a 20 center, and I'll be damned. The butterflies picked him up and carried him over the hedge. Was it necessary to be naked? I didn't tell him to. <laughs> so I stripped naked. He covered me in, in nectar. I said, okay. Who am I, who am I to, you know, to dampen a free spirit? Just, no, just questioning. To. This is a kind of creative thinking. I was so taken by the creative thinking, I rolled a 20-sider, and basically anything about over a 10, I probably let him do it just because it was fun. Um, I had a woman in the very first one of these I ran at a con, and she kept trying to take an adult. And I'm okay with that if we're all adults at the table. Well, I figured out her card after what happened on a card before. The card said, Red Dragon Pickle. So off in the distance, they saw a pickle. And I very seldom uh, met a game, but I, in this instance, I said, they see a pickle, and as you get close, my God, that must be the size of the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Right? I will met a game when I can get a laugh. Okay? I'm not a purist. And around it, they saw what they thought was a dragon. As they got closer, it was not a full-size dragon. It only had about a six-foot wingspan. So they dispatched the dragon, and they're, they're, they climbed the mountain, and there's the pickle skewered on the top of the mountain. And they're hunting all over, looking for the token, looking for the token. So the lady goes, I'm going to go up, and I'm going to lick that pickle. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought of this. So um, she goes up, and she she mimics, I lick, and she's rolling her eyes, and she's in a rapture. And I roll the dice, and it's like 83. Oh, man, all your hit points are cured. Whoa! So somebody else goes up. And he only rolled like a 37. Well, he got half his hit points. And the other guy rolled, went up. And before he even rolled, I said, I think you'll have to come back in a couple, three hours. It seems the pickle has lost its stamina. And it <laughs> we were in the middle of a group of about 30 other tables. So we disrupted every table in the auditorium. <laughs> it was wonderful. Then we got to her card. And I knew it was her card by the look she gave me afterwards. Because the card said, portal to another dimension undead vixens. So they stepped through the back of the wardrobe and they were immediately attacked by 137 rabid undead female foxes. 
<laughs> and she gave me a look, and I knew, I know your card now. <laughs> and so that's what I do. I, I take what they give me. I make it weird. Um, sometimes you got to battle. Sometimes you got to think. Sometimes you're underground. Sometimes you're above ground. Sometimes you're underwater. Sometimes you're in the air. All depends on what's in the card and how my buzz is doing at the time. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Complete honesty, right? We're in yep. the dojo. That's awesome. All right. Now, the curmudgeon. Um, I kept going. All right. I When I came back to the gaming industry in 2006, I was a guest auctioneer at Gen Con. <laughs> and so a few years I did that. And when I was doing that, Frank Mentor encouraged me to write adventures again and sell them to collectors. Because there's, there is and there was uh, a huge collector's market. So I had a hell of a racket going. I'd go to Gen Con. I'd make up, and I was putting them together with comb bindings in my basement. You know, So they were pretty crude. Full-color printing, though. And I was putting <laughs> together adventures, numbering them. Uh, I'd, I'd, write, uh, I'd make 10 copies and sell them for 300 bucks a pop. That Not made work going to Con worth it. That, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and so I was writing one a year for that. And um, then I started writing. Well, I wrote, I wrote, I way overwrote one for Texas. And everywhere I went, I was getting asked these questions, you know, about, hey, what do you think about, what do you think about that? And I was uncomfortable with that for a while. And um, finally, a few years back, been a while, so I've done 184 numbered ones, and there's probably another 15 before I went to YouTube that are now on YouTube. So there, there's probably close to 200 curmudgeons. And um, I did the first one as a report from a convention. Hi, it was a little, little, little. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it, it was fun. And I got comments. So I did another one, and I answered the comments, or I addressed the comments. And during the lockdown, I, in addition to the curmudgeon, I did, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 tales from the cellar. I read kids' books uh, aloud, and, you know, I've got a pretty good voice for that. So I was reading children's stories, so that, uh, and I had... A lot of people from the curmudgeon were, were playing them for their kids, you know, during the lockdown. Everybody was pretty bored, so even my stories <laughs> were bad. And um, I also did a few um, reports from the cellar talking about the, 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 the lockdown and what was going on. Um, I just like to park my butt down here, turn on the camera, and talk. I comment. I answer the comments from the week before. Not all of them, always. I got a couple of people on there who are long-winded and badly spelled and can't punctuate. Occasionally, I'll cut and paste a few lines out of it and make a good comment out of it. Um, some of them are going, yeah, I'm not going there. Um, but I, it's all based on the comments from the previous one, questions they ask, you know, what do you think about this? How do you handle that? And I always say, this is the way I do it. Not the way it should be done. Not even the way it says it was supposed to be done, written in the book. This is the way I do it. And very often why I do it that way if I know that I'm, you know, going outside of canon. Like you said, I've been working, I've been gaming all my life. My mom was a huge, I learned Parcheesi, I learned Candyland. I learned all those little kid games. 
Um, you know, when I was when I was a kid, we had every version of every TV quiz show, home version we had. And then in the sixth grade, a buddy and I were bored. We had a few weekends ahead of us that we'd already finished a project that we booked out for a month, and he had a copy of D-Day. And we sat down that first day and figured out the rules, and then we played it the rest of the month. <laughs> and I was hooked. And Mike and I played D-Day until the eighth grade. Then he went on to Catholic high school. I went on to public. All right, so I've been playing a long time. I like it all. I like I like board games. I like minis. Um, I've got oh, Jesus. I've fallen down a rabbit hole in minis. It's actually a board <laughs> game that has minis. Black Seas by Warlord Games out of England. Wonderful sailing game. Simplistic rules, but but they have the verisimilitude that you want in a game that's really about you know rolling a lot of dice when it comes down to it. But the problem is that the ships aren't painted. The pieces aren't painted. So I've spent probably 100 hours so far painting game pieces. How sick is they that? They got to look good. They got to look good. They will. They will when I'm done. They will. <laughs> now I've got them painted. I got the sails ready, but I got to put rat lines on them. I, I got I to string them all. That's the hardest part. Yeah. That and the 86 little gun carriages you got to paint. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I love it all. I've been playing a long time. I play the games I like to play. I have a grandson and a granddaughter who um, were in the games when they were littler. Um, both of them were playing cutthroat level Mahjong by, by the time they were eight or nine. Um, and, you know, Mahjong is a difficult game to master. Anybody can play it, but mastering it's in a whole other ball game. And I have a great-granddaughter who's six going on seven, who already has the mas- makings of a dungeon master. My tip to all dungeon masters or would-be dungeon masters who want a little mental calisthenics, either to sharpen yourself back up or to see if you're ready for this, go out and buy two or three sets of story dice. Dice that have pictures on them. Roll them out on the table and make a hook. Roll them out again and make a hook. It's very similar to what I do with the Wheel of Blade. Hmm. Well, my six-year-old great-granddaughter is pretty good at stringing a three-die story together. Different dice every time. And she's a little ADD. We know that. But (laughs) I actually kept her engaged in it for a good 45 minutes. And that's about 25 more minutes, and you get her to do anything else. Because she's just one of these kids that's got to do everything. (laughs) That, that's that's the makings streets. of a good game master. Yep. Because <laughs> uh, we're all a little behind. ADD. <laughs> Just a little. She may grow out of it. But that's a curmudgeon. That's all I do. Now, occasionally I'll see something on Facebook, some firestorm going on Facebook, and I I feel compelled to chime in. <laughs> firestorm, dumpster like fire. Drain. <laughs> there was a big thing going on a couple of weeks ago about level drain, and it's still going on. So I addressed it, how I deal with level drain. And that's what I said. This is the way I do it. Do you like the idea? Fine. I don't, you know, I haven't trademarked it. I haven't patented it. Take it. Run with it. That used to be the best part about D&D. You saw an idea, you lifted it, and you put it in your game. Yep, yep, yep. Everybody's game was a hodgepodge in that regard. 
Now, as long as the core rules remain the same, you could play in anybody's game. His game's high magic. His game's low magic. This guy loves orcs. This, you know, you could do that. Not now. Everybody's too specialized. Way yeah. too many character classes. We could do a five-minute rant on that. How many kinds of crusaders do you need? Do you well, even need a crusader? Yeah, I look at a fighting guy that's got a, a a strong moral ethic. He's a fighter. See, I look at it the same way, but yes. I also look at it as they're they're also homogenizing, where everyone can cast magic, everyone can do the same things that everyone else can oh, do. I know. Oh, so, that's terrible. Yeah. Plus, yeah. plus they're maxing out characters before they step the foot in a dungeon. Yeah. I because I, I do I do view the five E column every now and again. You know, like three, four times a week. And I see, you can't get 243 hit points on my first level. I was punching. Jesus Christ. First level. We're lucky if we had five hit points. That, unless that, you're a mage. That's what we talked about one time. If you were a oh, mage, you're you lucky. If you were a mage with five hit points, you've been blessed a couple yeah, of times. Yeah. You were lucky to get two on average. <laughs> 2.5. Yeah. I had a magic user that was killed in a bar fight. Uh, well, look at look at the bard. Yeah. First, yeah. first edition bard was one bad dude. Yeah. Second edition bard was a weenie. Yep. What a win. <laughs> um, you know who Dan the bard is? Dan Marcotte? No. Oh, all you and all your viewers, Dan the bard. Dan Marcotte, M-A-R-C-O-T-T-E. He does two or three albums of the funniest D&D songs you have ever heard. And he does one about Bard Camp. <laughs> to take off on Band Camp about how what goes on at Bard Camp stays at Bard Camp. Well, a second edition Bard picked a, first, a, di a fight with a first edition Bard. It was only afterwards he found out they already knew how to fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, he does. If, if you've got any sense of humor at all and you do fantasy role-playing, Go look at his website. There's two or three there you can listen to for nothing. Buy some of his CDs. Oh, we will. Uh, they're hilarious. Uh, Princess Picklepuss. That's a good song. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I won't give you my spin on him. Just go check him out. Dan the Bard. He's hilarious. He, he really is a funny guy. And he talks about a lot of the quirks and the, the weird things in, in role playing. And uh, therefore, I like him. I'm looking forward to that. God knows yeah. we all got a little weird going on. Yes, we do. We sure do. And now you gotta you gotta wrap this up. I know, and, yep. and then we're gonna BS afterwards. And all you people are gonna wonder what did they talk about after they went <laughs> off the air? The yeah. special we're, stuff. We're not gonna say either. <laughs> That's the other tape that That's someday right. will be discovered. <laughs> That's for the Patreons. <laughs> and that's an evening with Tim Cask. Don't forget to go check out the curmudgeon in the cellar. And the Wheel of Blame online game for money. The links are going to be in the description below. We'll see you next time in the dojo. That's going to conclude this episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Please subscribe to the podcast for more great content. If you'd like to hear a particular topic, you can reach us out on Facebook at the Dungeon Masters Dojo. Or you can drop us an email at the Dungeon Masters Dojo at gmail.com. Thank you and have a good day.